Hello everyone, it's January 1st, 2019. Happy New Year! Let's hope it's a good one with lots of cool events in the world of spaceflight. I think it will be. To start the year off, we're talking about Chang'e 4, only days away from landing on the far side of the moon. So let's do it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 191 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So did everyone have a good Christmas? Oh yeah. Ate too much, drank too much, played a lot of video games. Exactly what I wanted. Yeah, dr- drank too much is... Well, okay, I didn't I didn't really get wasted, but uh, <laughs> we, we like had a little party and I made like I think a gallon of coquito, which is um, Puerto Rico's answer to eggnog. So it's like um, coconut milk. Mm or like coconut cream instead of like egg and custard and milk and that kind of thing. Um, and it was like mostly rum, but like, you know, it was like rum with a shot of coconut flavor afterwards. I mean, it's really, really good. That sounds um, delicious. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can drink way more of it than you think you can. It sounds way better than eggnog. Cause I don't hate eggnog, but I'm not really a fan. Yeah. So if it's mm-hmm. an improvement on eggnog, I'm all for it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, it's definitely kind of the same category, but improvement. And, uh, yeah, we, we made, I think I made like two gallons and we ended up with like half a gallon at the end of the night. <laughs> so if that were eggnog spiked or not, that would be a lot like yeah that sounds like a like a challenge or a task you know consume that much dairy and alcohol yeah exactly well, what that's I the thing thinking. is that there's very little dairy it's mostly alcohol um and so i was really afraid that it was gonna um cause gastric distress because coconut is a laxative but it it didn't it was actually really nice so sweet and then um we made uh Sorry, I'm going to keep talking about food for a little bit. <laughs> we made, I made, uh, I made an open-faced beef Wellington, which was just like puff pastry on the bottom, you know, mushroom and mustard, and then a chunk of seared steak on top. And I thought it was going to be really good, and it wasn't that great. Um, for some reason, when you actually make a beef Wellington, it's way better than just assembling all the pieces separately. So now I got to work on figuring out why this didn't taste as good as I wanted it to. That is some insightful stuff about beef Wellington that, you know, it's more than just the sum of its parts. Isn't that weird? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had it. It sounds like English food. So maybe that's why it wasn't that great. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> Does the name it's, give it away? <laughs> so, somebody right 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 uh sir sir beef of wellington uh yeah. <laughs> so someone someone in the chat a while ago was talking about making a beef wellington for thanksgiving i think and i was like oh that's that seems so complicated it really it's not it's not as bad as i thought it was um because the next day i basically made an actual beef wellington because i had all the parts sitting around and yeah it's, just, it's so weird like the exact same parts and it was better when it was baked i've been introducing my folks over the holidays to mexican cuisine which they essentially Oh. have never eaten before really so oh, wow. they've had tacos the last couple of times they've been home but had enchiladas for the first time wow like enchiladas are so i don't know i think of them as very like fundamental they're, they're just <laughs> they they are who they are <laughs> and it makes perfect sense to me that they would have never tried it before but yeah my dad's a very fussy eater and my mom just mm. uh she's not very uh i don't know um adventurous but sure <laughs> They like them. I mean, they enjoyed it. It seems like everybody eats Mexican food, though. It's kind of surprising. I mean, I'm sure some people don't, and I guess your folks don't. But yeah, it's like such a ubiquitous food. They're super Polish and very set in their ways. (laughs) Although, I mean, Polish food is good, too. It's just very, very different from Mexican food. So once again, that was our top of the show food talk, and now we can move on to space. (laughs) This week in spaceflight history, do we have any winners? And what was our clue again? Yeah, uh, 
Um, so our clue was where the wild things really are. And our winners were Anderson DeNova and HZ Science. And I'm really glad that that we had winners because this week in spaceflight history is the 2nd of January, 2004. It was Stardust flying past Vilt 2. Uh, mm-hmm. Vilt spelled W-I-L-D. And uh, I was a little nervous that people were going to like preemptively correct me on my pronunciation. Uh, but yeah, so Vilt 2 is a comet and we sent uh, a spacecraft i I don't know something about cometary missions just kind of shock me the fact that we can do it Mm -hmm. Um, but what what's really cool uh oh yeah so first off uh obligatory uh stardust is also known as discovery four so there's your mission class uh for this week of spaceflight (laughs) history so its primary mission was to go study vilt 2 which is a long period comet and the question is how the heck do you get your spacecraft going fast enough to reach a long period comet without just screaming past it so fast that there's no way you can get uh, meaningful data from the flyby. And here's the really cool thing. Uh, Vilt 2, even though it used to be a long period comet back in 1974, it flew past Jupiter in just the right way that it actually like uh, it didn't capture, but it got pushed into a lower orbit. So now Vilt 2 is actually a very accessible target, even though it, it used to not be. Um, so it, this is a very, a, a very cool science target, right? Because all of a sudden we have access to a class of object that normally we don't. Yeah. So one of the reasons that I, that I really like this mission, we got to do something really cool. So while Stardust did some cool imaging techniques, I don't really care about them because <laughs> it did a really, really amazing thing, which was it flew through the coma and collected uh, samples and it actually returned samples. So first off, um, flying through the tail of a comet is really dangerous because there are relatively large pieces of the comet flying directly at you. And if you do it, you know, at relative high speeds, um, even though Stardust match speeds with the comet better than just doing you know, some sort of crazy fly past it, they still was moving relatively quickly uh, relative to the comet. So you have to be able to go into this dangerous region to be able to collect your science, to be able to, to, to collect your uh, samples and, and do what you want to do. But at the same time, it's dangerous. You know, it's, it's both of these things. So if you look at an image of Stardust or a render of Stardust, it actually has like boxes on the leading edges of its solar panels. So it's it's solar panels um, are almost draped like wings behind it. Well, I mean, they're, they're to the side of it, but like, if you think of it shoulders, Mm -hmm. they, uh, they kind of like drape down from the shoulders. So they, they basically run along the long axis of the vehicle. And so at the, at the front of them, you've got these big chunky boxes and uh, those boxes are actually shielding to protect uh, the solar arrays, and then the vehicle itself has got shielding uh, on its nose. The the shielding is called Whipple shielding. And what's really cool about Whipple shielding is that it doesn't, it's not built to slow down incoming particles. It's not intended to deflect incoming particles. And it's definitely not built to stop incoming particles. 
All it does, its sole purpose in life is to shred incoming particles. So you can have a particle come in, hit your Whipple shielding, and then hit your spacecraft and you're okay. Because instead of having, you know, however many Newtons of force being applied to uh, a target the size of a grain of dust, all of a sudden you have that many Newtons applied to something the size of the palm of your hand. You know, by spreading this energy out, you, you can survive... Uh, highly energetic impacts. So what was the relative velocity then? Because it seems that the gas and stuff given mm-hmm. up by a comma is so mm-hmm. diffuse that you would even have to really worry about it. At least that's what I was led to believe. Yeah, up to a thousand meters per second. Okay, I guess that's pretty fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> there were large enough particles that it actually was a problem, I guess. Because they say that, you know, the tails of comets, you can see it from a distance, but in reality, it's very diffuse I mean, just very small amounts of anything. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and, and if if somebody can correct me, I believe a, a kilometer a second is is what Stardust encountered. But Whipple shields uh, theoretically can protect up to eighteen kilometers a second. You know, in in that area. So, I believe that what Stardust mostly encountered was around a kilometer a second. Could have been higher, and it wouldn't really mattered. And is that per? Because these are kind of like you know layers and layers is it that each shield kind of does like its own little bit of shredding and then the next shield can shred some more and the next one shreds some more and it kind of just kind of multiplies in that sense yeah i i believe so i'm not a hundred percent sure how the mechanics work i know that it, it kind of follows you know the uh the bulletproof vest theory where you do have multiple layers but i i'm not a hundred percent sure what the mechanism is there and, and i believe that they're like actually composite materials where you have like kevlar and then foam and then kevlar and then foam or so- something like that oh here, here's a here's a great uh a great example from uh sam in the chat um, he links to the Giotto spacecraft, which um, uh, made a close approach to uh, uh, to a comet, to, to Halley's comet. Actually, this was like the uh, our previous attempt to study a comet, and it actually pushed the spacecraft off axis. One one hit did, so it got hit with one particle and was enough to start spinning the spacecraft. Um, and they also lost their main camera due to uh, an impact from commentary material. That's a the great example of why you, why you need shielding. Yeah. So now we, we've got ourselves uh, armored to the point where we can actually go into the commentary coma. And the really cool thing is if you're there, if you're actually touching the stuff, you can capture it. So they had uh, an arm that folded up from the back of the spacecraft that basically had a tennis racket shoved full of aerogel, right? It's this grid of little tiny bits of aerogel. By, by little tiny, I think they're like one by two centimeters, one by one by two centimeters, something like that in, in this grid. And, you know, it's kind of this low density, soft material that can act as a decelerator. And so we were actually able to capture cometary material. And uh, in the show notes will be this beautiful close-up of the leading edge of one of these um, cells of aerogel. And um, one of the interesting things is that while Stardust had really, really strict planetary protection uh, status, like they, they wanted to make sure that it was as clean as could be, they didn't really care about bringing things home. They were not at all worried about there being uh, bacteria on the comet that were then 
uh, introduced into Earth's biosphere because they're hitting this aerogel so quickly, you know, like a kilometer or more per second, mm-hmm. that it they were sure it was going to kill anything that slammed into the spacecraft. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, and then, uh, Dennis, you had a, a neat little bit of trivia here about the about the aerogel experiment. Oh, yeah. Just when I was I was looking up on it and I noticed the uh, the principal investigator was Donald Brownlee from University of Washington. And that name, some of you might recognize, is the person who was one of the co-authors on The Rare Earth, uh, which was all about, you know, an argument that essentially life, complex life at least, would be pretty rare in our galaxy and the universe because of all the different kind of hurdles life on Earth had to go through. And so, yeah, it makes sense. Sometimes these people become a hit with a book or something like that, but you got to recognize mm-hmm. they do a lot of actual mm-hmm. science. <laughs> Real work, yeah. Um, and then, then, of course, the uh, the aerogel uh, tennis racket was then folded into a sample return capsule and, and returned home. And uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. This really, if you have a chance to look at the picture of Stardust, it is such an intuitive spacecraft you know what i mean it's got the main bus with the solar panels off to the sides but the shielding makes sense it's all kind of forward facing and then the tennis racket sample collection kind of can fold up you know above everything and be exposed Mm -hmm. and it can like you say it'll fold back in and get protected and sent back to earth yeah it's quite elegant i gotta agree with you Hmm. and then uh, i'm kind of cherry picking my way through the science experiments on board because i (laughs) This I get to pick what I like. Um, and the other one that I think is really cool is the dust flux monitor instrument. So it used polarized plastic. Uh, it's a PVDF plastic. And so every time it got hit by a particle, even very, very, very small particles, uh, it can generate an electric potential, which can be detected by electronics attached to the plastic. So not only were they able to capture actual particles, but they were able to detect how many particles were zipping past them in total. Um, and then that was actually used later, which I'll talk about in a sec. So yeah, so we we fly home. Stardust uh, does not re-enter, but it drops its uh, sample return canister and then uh, does a little bit of an avoidance maneuver to not burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. So 15th of January 2006 at 0957 hours UTC, the sample return capsule re-entered the Earth's atmosphere and uh, it it came down over, let's see, I think it flew over Arizona and then landed in Utah. It's kind of the path it took. But it came down very, very, very steeply. In fact, it's max Gs. It hit 34 Gs on the way down mm. is the maximum wow. load. Um, and that happened uh, very quickly after entering the atmosphere. So, it, you know, you have to bleed off a lot of energy up high and it did that successfully. And then it, you know, parachutes down. Um, there is a photo that will be in the show notes, which I just adore. And it's the sample return capsule on the ground um, as photographed by the recovery team. So this is like you walk up to this thing that just came in from outer space and you snap a photo. And so it's a, it's a biconic design, uh, just like, you know, you'd expect any small uh, sample return capsule to look like if if you're familiar with anything like this. But instead of being nose down, so the heat shield is touching the the dirt, it is actually kind of on its side. And there's this beautiful arc in the sand where it's rolled back and forth in the wind. And something about this photo just feels so visceral and real to me. It just like I want to hug it and I'll 
like I want to be afraid of it, but I also want to kind of hug it. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's so cool to see these things like in a real world context instead of, you know, uh, artist renderings, which give you no sense of scale and, you know, no, no personality. So what did we learn from this? Maybe this should be Dennis's portion here, but they had a volunteer study called Stardust at Home. Uh, where you could download data and categorize parts of it. And a volunteer actually discovered a particle that had a velocity that didn't match everything else. And so that was, it turns out to be an interstellar particle and they actually discovered a few more, which is pretty nifty. Uh, there was evidence of liquid water. There was uh uh, mineral that can only form in the presence of liquid water. So that suggests that, hey, comets do actually warm up uh, at some point uh, long enough to actually form, you know, minerals and then they refreeze. And then they also discovered glycine. I mean, there are you know, many other things they discovered, but notably they discovered glycine, which is an amino acid. The reason that I wanted Dennis, I wanted you to mention Donald Brownlee is because... There's a bit of an irony there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it seems really interesting to me that our default assumption is that earth is the only place where there's water. Oh, no, okay. Well, earth is the only place that there's, uh, the building blocks of life. And then of course the, the next one is, Oh, well earth, you know, there may be building blocks of life elsewhere, but the earth is the only place where you actually find microbes, you know? Mm-hmm. And it just, it's not true. We're, earth is not special. Of course we, we, there, there's a room for rarity, right? Like not every planet is earth, but we're not special. We're we're not the only place where, you know, where the building blocks of life form. It, we just aren't, you know, these amino acids are very basic chemicals that we just happen to co-opt. Now, whether they can, you know, form into life is, is arguably a different question, but I think it's really beautiful that there is a cloud of alcohol out, you know, out there somewhere. That's there, exactly where my brain went to. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there are amino acids out there. Amino acids are not hard to, to build. So, and, and in retrospect, you know, it, it shouldn't be that surprising because mm-hmm. if life was made out of very rare elements, you know, very rare chemicals, very rare molecules, then that would be, it'd be really hard to explain how life could arise anywhere in the first place. And so the fact that it uses water, which is ubiquitous, you know, hydrogen, oxygen are the first and I think third or fourth most common elements in the universe that it uses, you know, I mean, there's a reason it has to use carbon chemistry because of the way the bonds uh, form. But the fact that it uses these types of molecules that are we find in interstellar gas clouds, that we find in the atmospheres of other worlds in our solar system, that we find in comets and even on asteroids, right? I mean, now, but like you say, though, the real question is uh, when you have the raw materials and even if you get liquid water, what happens next and how likely is that? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so that was Stardust. And then what's really cool is that Stardust was then uh, repurposed into a secondary mission called Stardust Next. And Stardust Next went and visited Temple One, which is another comet. And what's really, really cool is that Temple One was previously visited by the mission Deep Impact. So, so this is the first time that uh, we got to see a comet before and after it had gone around the sun. So obviously, you know, Temple One had been zipping around the sun for ages, but to be able to contrast one trip versus, or one orbit versus the next, really was the first time we got to do that. And then of course, um, churyumov gerasimenko got to, uh, no, uh, not churyumov gerasimenko that's the name of the comet, uh, Rosetta. <laughs> Rosetta got to do that with churyumov gerasimenko And that's, it's like, you know, steps and increments and, 
iterations and it's very cool so uh stardust encountered temple one in 2011 and then it was decommissioned they jettisoned the rest of the fuel and uh, pacified the the spacecraft so uh, stardust is not doing anything now but boy did it get to do some really cool stuff and it's still you know if i remember correctly right uh the sample return on osiris rex is based on the stardust design okay yeah i, I believe it um I, I think i think we mentioned that yeah all right, so I have a clue for next week. Uh, next week in 1990, the clue is we didn't forget about you. Hmm. 1990, we didn't forget about you. I see the game you're playing now, Ben, and I'm going to... I feel a little upset <laughs> I didn't get where the wild things really are. I should have gotten the build, too. Damn it. <laughs> well, if you know, if you remember if, what if that clue is about... <laughs> if you know which word is intentionally mispronounced in this clue, yeah. then... Right. <laughs> if anyone out there thinks that they know, just give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Chang'e 4 pre-landing summary. Yeah, so just to, you know, remind everybody, Chang'e 1 was the, uh, you know, first in China's uh, Chinese lunar exploration program. And uh, the Chang'e 1 successfully, you know, orbited the moon in 2007. Chang'e 2 was a backup one that was repurposed or just kind of more upgraded better cameras and uh, also orbited the moon in 2010. And then Chang'e 3, you know, famously uh, landed on the moon in 2013 the first soft landing since luna 24 in 1976 so that was pretty cool just you know five mm -hmm. years ago and uh now's the next step in this you know constantly kind of moving along program the changa 4 will be you know landing on the moon shortly and so mm -hmm. uh this is a repurposed uh backup of changa 3 and so they kept constructing them in pairs and it looks like they're going to continue to do that for a little bit at least first before we go any farther uh, i have to admit that between now and the last time we mentioned changa uh, i have w uh, gone and rewatched all of the avatar the last airbender and avatar legend of korra and so since changa is named after the moon goddess i can't help but think of this mission in terms of sokka's girlfriend <laughs> uh, i don't get that reference but yeah I'm gonna uh, have sokka's to girlfriend became the moon like that, okay. That's uh, that's all this references. That's that's for the listeners at home. <laughs> yeah. Uh go watch Avatar. It's really good. So, uh yeah, Chang'e 4 is landing on the far side of the moon, uh which is kind of difficult not only because you have communication issues, but also because the near side of the moon is covered in mares, these nice big flat expanses where you can you close your eyes and land and it doesn't matter. The far side of the moon is a lot rockier. Um, so there are two different things that they're doing to make this uh, possible. First off, they have new hazard avoidance algorithms on board, um, which you know, is easily easy to understand why that's a good thing, but they're also using a steeper descent profile. Um, so instead of coming in with a perfect gravity turn, which is, uh, you know, a very long kind of almost like half a parabola, uh, going into the surface, mm -hmm. they're actually going to come in from a very steep angle. And I, I think that the idea is that they're going to be able to image their landing site directly for a, uh, a longer period of time because it's not like they're coming up over the horizon as, as it were they're not looking at edge on for most of the time um so once they land um and, and this whole mission has got a lot of different components so first let's talk about you know the surface operation so once they land they have um some basic science goals first off they're landing an aitken basin uh which is really cool it's a giant crater that's like nine mm -hmm. feet deep or, or uh, nine miles deep or something uh, it's this yeah. giant giant crater one 
of the biggest um, in the like entire solar system, like really. Right. There. Uh, yeah. And so, um, the thought is that this impact is so severe that it possibly, ex- you know, went all the way through the crust and exposed part of the mantle. So this is a great time to do science, potentially looking at the interior of the moon, which I think is, uh, tantalizing. Right. And especially considering the the main hypothesis for, you know, the moon forming mm-hmm. from a giant impact with the early Earth and a Mars-sized body, uh, looking at yep. the interior of the moon is definitely going to place some constraints on that hypothesis. So Yes. Yeah. So hopefully we'll be able to begin to understand whether that's a, a real possibility or not. Um, they're going to measure the lunar surface temperature over time. Uh, they have a an experiment called LND, the Lunar Lander Neutrons and Dosimetry uh, Experiment, which is going to measure uh, radiation exposure, um, which is going to help us characterize uh, what humans are going to encounter um, when we go back to the moon. And, and a lot of different parts of this mission are also looking at solar science. And so LND is also going to uh, be looking at the solar wind and, and how it propagates uh, between uh, the sun and Earth and the moon. Uh, it's got a low frequency spectrometer called the LFS, uh, which is going to study coronal mass ejections. Uh, which it's really weird. You go to the moon to study the sun and there's a reason for that. We'll talk, talk more about that later. And then one thing that we've talked about before on the show is there's a three kilogram bio experiment that has a Arabidopsis seeds, potato seeds, and silkworm larva. And so the idea is we're going to grow the Arabidopsis and the potato and the silkworms are going to be able to eat it. And hopefully they'll be able to form this very, very limited ecosystem. And, you know, this is not an experiment that is going to be unique, right? We could have done this in low earth orbit and had, you know, practically the same thing. But, uh, I, I think ideologically it's, it's a good idea, um, to begin to start doing this stuff on the moon, uh, as a prelude to, to more complex experiments. One thing that is cool about it, this is being done in lunar gravity. So, I mean, I don't know what kind of effect that would have, but that's one thing to, you know, just yeah, cause it's not, it's not micro, it's not zero G it's, yeah. it's just low G. A tenth yeah. of a G. Right, yeah. it's a tenth of a G. It's about a sixth of a G. Yeah, yeah, six. Yeah. That would round it. Okay. Yeah. Now, Ben, could you help me, uh, as well as any of our non-botanically minded listeners, <laughs> as to what exactly a Rabidopsis is? Because oh, you, this sounds familiar, though, right? It, 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 sure. it really like rolls off the tongue very nicely. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. So a, a Rabidopsis is really, really cool. It's one of our model organisms. So oh, uh, it, it's it's a very well characterized. Uh, plant it's one of the first plants that had its entire genome sequenced if if not the first actually so like yeah like c elegans or drosophila yeah it's the first plant to have its entire genome sequenced Mm -hmm. um and what's what's really cool is well first off um it's a brassica right uh brassica is a, a family of plants that contains the best plants um so broccoli and mustard and cabbage uh, they're all brassicas, um, Brussels sprouts. Seriously, the you know God created the the earth mm-hmm. and then created plants, and then He created all the other plants that weren't brassicas because brassicas were <laughs> See, pretty much perfect. I just wanted to get you talking about food again. <laughs> well, See, I did that. <laughs> you yeah. succeeded. Uh, but what what one of the really cool things about Arabidopsis? I've actually grown Arabidopsis in experiments. Is that um, it's uh, phenotype is very closely tied to its genotype. So 
Uh, mm. There are a lot of things like, let's say in humans, you can change our genomes and not see any change in our physical body. But a Arabidopsis, if you make a tiny change in its genome, it's very likely to make a change in its physical appearance or, you know, its physical makeup. Um, so you can, there are a lot of different genes that you can uh, attach to different different markers and things, and you can see changes without having to do any sequencing. You can just see it in the plant. Uh, so it's it's just a very handy, um, nice plant, uh, and it it tastes pretty good. I mean, uh, yeah. I certainly haven't eaten anything directly out of a out of a science lab, but I can confirm that it is tasty. If you get young Arabidopsis, it makes a nice salad. That's a little bitter, but it makes a nice salad. Uh, and the flowers are really pretty and also kind of tasty. Boy, this is not well, my thank fault. Thank you, Ben. I- the food. <laughs> Okay, so um, Chang'e 4, just like Chang'e 3, has got a lander and a rover. And it's actually kind of funny because the rover is on top of the lander, so it has to get from a relatively high altitude down to the surface. So they have a ramp, and the ramp is really, really steep. But since the gravity is low, the static friction is relatively high, so it actually works out. But uh, the lander has got a radioisotope thermoelectric heater actually i think it it actually generates electricity as well but it's mostly a heater to keep it warm during the night the rover doesn't have a heater or a thermoelectric heater so what it does is it actually folds its panels closed if it's like chang'e 3 it closes its panels and kind of like goes into this um insulation mode where it kind of just huddles up i mean think about a cute Mm -hmm. little bug you know that's not actually what's happening but you know you kind of curls itself up and and tries to keep itself warm during the night so um you U2, which is Chang'e-3's rover. Um, U2 is a reference to the rabbit in the moon. We see a human face in the moon in the Western world. The, in China, they see a rabbit, which I think is way cooler. And if you actually look at like sketches, it does really look like a rabbit. Anyway, <laughs> so U2, the U2 rover survived the first night. It, it was fine. The second day, it woke up and it did a little bit of hobbling around, but they had what what the uh, China state's media said was a mechanical control anomaly. Um, so basically, it wasn't able to hunker down for the second night. And so the third, the morning of the third lunar day, it basically was dead. It, it didn't wake up. Uh, we never regained control of it. But um, just like... Uh, Chang'e 3, this rover is expected to last for three months, which is, you know, approximately three days. Um, so hopefully that will work. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens, but yeah, it's, it's kind of cool that they have this lander that, you know, just has to kind of survive in the cold. Okay. So this entire time I've been talking about how there are multiple parts to this mission. Let's talk about some of those other parts. So in a previous mission, I think it was back in, in summer, uh, was the launch of Chue Chiao, which is the uh, communications relay, um, which we've mentioned before. What's really cool is it's not in lunar orbit. It's actually way out in a halo orbit around the Earth-Moon L2 point, um, which is perfect. Like L2 f- uh, orbits the Earth at the same speed as the Moon, except it's on the far side of the Moon. So, you know, it's almost like holding up a mirror behind the target that you're trying to talk to. It's it's perfect. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's primarily going to act as a comms relay. Oh, but Dennis, you said you you mentioned uh, an experiment uh, that's on it called NCLE, right? And, and that that's like a telescope? Yeah, so it's, yeah, pretty much. And it's just kind of looking at a sort of low frequency uh, band of radio that you just can't do if you're anywhere near the Earth's, uh, within the Earth's ionosphere. 
just because of uh, basically charged particles are kind of trapping uh, that type of radiation. And so uh, Trey Chow happening to just be, you know, in a very stable orbit and far away enough from the Earth's uh, ionosphere means that, you know, you can kind of do this for the first time. And so this is really cool that they kind of just piggybacked it onto the this, you know, comms relay. Yeah. But you can imagine, you know, maybe in our lifetimes having a dedicated, you know, low frequency radio telescope out there to do some, yeah. you know, really serious stuff at that yeah, kind of sure. band. Yeah. So uh, NCLE studies 80 kilohertz to 80 megahertz. And there's actually another experiment that goes even lower than that. So launched on the same launch as Chue Chao were Longjiang 1 and Longjiang 2. Uh, and Long means dragon. Jiang means river. So dragon river. Probably another uh, astronomical or astrological reference. Uh, it's my guess. I could look it up, but I'm not going to. So uh, uh, LJ1 and LG2 are two small sats. I don't think they're actually CubeSats, but they are uh, pretty tiny. And they uh, were intended to enter lunar orbit, right? So Chue Chiao um, did a lunar flyby and then, you know, use that to help sling itself out to L2. And then Longjiang 1 and 2 did at, were intended to enter orbit. LJ1 uh, did not do so. It, it failed and got flung out into cislunar space somewhere. I don't know what the status of it is. But LJ2 uh, is now able to do even lower frequency observations. So if Chiao is 80 kilohertz to 80 megahertz, uh, LJ2 is 1 megahertz to 30 megahertz. So very, very, very low. And similarly, you know, it also needs to be outside of the ionosphere to be able to do that work. Uh, and then, so so that's uh, Chang uh, 4. Dennis, did you want to talk about upcoming Chinese missions to the moon? Yeah, yeah. And so I just think it's such an awesome program that's been doing great things. And so we get to look forward to Chang'e 5 is the next one in the sequence. And this is going to be, you know, kicking it up a notch. This will be a near side sample return. So you can imagine there's a lot more going on there in terms of, you know, the, the tech necessary to get it to work, uh, to have, uh, you know, the first time the Chinese will be doing this uh, on the moon or anywhere. And uh, so that's uh, the next one coming up. And then after that is, you know, Chang'e 6, which just like they've been paired so far, like Chang'e 5 is a uh, another sample return. And that one's aimed, they're aiming for 2020 for that sample return. And then after that, there's much less information about them, but just vaguely the later Changas would be looking for water ice, in particular near the poles, as well as potentially testing uh, ISRU and other technologies, uh, some feasibility studies uh, being tagged on there. Oh, and we're seeing that Dan is mentioning that Longjiang is an old name for Heilongjiang province which is where they were built. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So so Heilongjiang is like way up in the northwest of China. Like it's north of the Korean Peninsula. And so uh, the, the those satellites were built at the Harbin Institute of Technology, which is like Harbin is the largest city, I think, in uh, Heilongjiang. Um, and so Sam is saying that a lot of Chinese small sats have county or provincial names because they're funded or sponsored by local governments, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right, so let's uh, let's do three short and sweet. And Dennis, you're going to do our first one. Right. So SpaceX is on schedule for its first commercial interplanetary launch. Yep. Emphasis on commercial, by the way, before anyone tries to correct us. Commercial. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Israel's Bereshit lunar lander, the first private lunar lander in the world, will be launching as a rideshare along with the PSN-6 geostationary communications satellite. The two spacecraft will be launched on a Falcon 9, making it SpaceX's first commercial mission to another planetary body. This unique rideshare combination may allow for much lower-cost missions to other worlds by piggybacking smaller spacecraft alongside others destined for geostationary orbit, where they can then push out into the solar system. And next up, India to launch its own astronauts. So India's Union Cabinet has approved an expenditure of about $1.43 billion to launch three humans into space by 2022. The three astronauts will launch aboard a GSLV Mark III booster and spend seven days in low Earth orbit. The exact launch date is currently set for December 21st, 2021, and will be preceded by two uncrewed test flights. If successful, India will be the fourth nation to put humans into space, following Russia, the United States, and China. And finally, uh, crewed Orion spacecraft passes critical design review. Earlier this month, the Orion spacecraft slated to fly on EM-2 passed its critical design review. The EM-1 version, which will not carry people, had already been passed. This review focused on the key changes of the crude version, notably the ECLSS, uh, E-C-L-S-S, or Environmental Control and Life Support Systems, uh, as well as the crew displays. Uh, the review resulted in over 200 RFAs, or requests for action, that need to be addressed before Orion can carry humans. But this is expected and should be resolved by the EM-2 launch date. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. questions comments and corrections and maybe clarifications because yeah that is what we should really call it because we do that a lot here too so last week dennis you were telling us a little bit about um the this week in spaceflight history topic which was the rossi x-ray timing explorer yeah yeah so yeah so yeah so peter wellbacher uh correctly pointed out that our attempt my attempted correction burn uh, didn't really take. <laughs> we had talked uh, about um, and misstated that the cosmic X-ray. Uh, we we nothing. I did this. <laughs> hey, we're a team, and so um, and so I tried to you know correct that, do a little correction burn for that by highlighting that all the different portions of the electromagnetic spectrum have their own sources of background radiation. There's a cosmic infrared background and cosmic X-ray background and everything, but. I left out, I, I did in my head, but I said it in my head, but I left it out in the actual recording that those are coming from astrophysical sources. They're not relic radiation from the Big Bang. That's only true of the cosmic microwave background. The cosmic infrared background is coming from astrophysical sources, and that's also true for the X-ray background. So that said, thank you, Peter, for that clarification uh, slash correction. And uh, yeah. Appreciate it. Let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. Uh, we just got one little launch, and that is all. And that's not really for like another week. <laughs> so who <laughs> wants to take this one? So uh, on January 7th, we'll have a Falcon 9 Block 5 taking uh, Iridium 8, uh, which will deliver 10 satellites for the uh, communication company uh, Iridium. And so this will be uh, on January 7th at 1553 UTC, instantaneous window, coming from Space Launch Complex 4E at Vandenberg. 
California. All right. So that is your upcoming spaceflight event. One lonely event. Okay. Well, that is it. That is today's show. And so we will now deorbit. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.